Hi, I'm Leighton Orient striker Matt Harold, and you are listening to the Just Checking In podcast. Hello again, listeners, and welcome to episode 30 of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. Obviously, listeners, we can't do this pod without mentioning the big elephant in the room, which is COVID-19 or coronavirus. It's the reason we're doing this podcast over Skype today with my special guest, as we are firmly following the self-isolation rules. I hope that everyone's families are really safe and well during this time, and we'll be putting out a piece of tailored content around coronavirus, um, which I hope will be of some comfort during this difficult time. Onto the task at hand now, and my special guest for this milestone episode is someone who until recently was very much on the front line when it came to how music venues deal with the mental health of their clientele. He's also a fellow, gra- fellow graduate of a beach-based university, his alma mater had a sandy beach, I'm a bit jealous of that, and he's also someone who I've admired from afar and how he has channeled his energy and time into pursuing the passions that he loves, namely photography and videography. So I'm delighted to be welcoming Colin Brett onto the Just Checking In pod. Colm is a venue events professional who has worked to the likes of London venue Printworks, as well as other assorted venues in his very outstanding repertoire. He is also founder of Colm Brett Visuals. Colm, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. It's been a while. How are you, pal? Yeah, good, thank you, mate. Um, long time no see as well. I'm looking forward to being on the pod, to be honest, mate. I've been trying to get this together for how long now? Six months, seven months? So, yeah, looking forward to it. Excellent. Well, now we've got that out of the way, shall we get started? Sounds good to me, mate. Let's do it. first topic I want to dive into with you, Colm, and it's one, which, one of which I mentioned in your intro is the work you did at Printworks for Field Vision Bars. Now, first of all, just tell me a bit about the work you did for it, what other venues you've worked at and what your job entailed. Yeah, so um, I was um, operations manager and my official job title was um, a venue events manager for Field Vision Bars. So we specialised in um, supplying the smallest of bars from maybe two metres just for like a little private event up to uh, festivals like Kendall Calling um, and supplying the whole bar layout for that, which is up to 23 bars, I think, 24 bars at Kendall. Um, we also have two venues, or when I left, we had two venues under the sort of company repertoire, which was Printworks, which I'm sure everyone knows, done very well, recently announced fifth best nightclub in the world in DJ Mixmag, which was really good to see. A lot of work's gone into that venue. Um, and then the other one is Drum Sheds, which just opened up in Tottenham Hale. Um, obviously much bigger, can hold up to 50,000 for field day, which I saw you at last year, which was class. Um, and then, yeah, we do other festivals, all the Rewind festivals, um, Kendall Calling, as I said, Blue Dot, um, sort of anything under Broadwick Live, who we've got partnership with, um, anything under their festival repertoire we go out and do, so snow bombing in Austria and stuff as well. Um, but yeah, I think that is that's about it in terms of what we do. And then uh, my role was just to mainly focus on the venue side of things and make sure that the bars there are running smoothly, um, keeping up with brands and making sure that we're putting across what they want to do um, and also making sure that our, how many, we had 100, 
120 something staff part time, just making sure they're all okay um, and, and sort of getting on all right. Excellent. I think the listeners will know if they've been to any club, bar or venue, how hard the bar staff work as well as, well as any other support staff behind the scenes. How was it for you in sort of managing other people as well as yourself during those really busy hours, those really sort of high octane nights um, and your mental health as in, in that capacity? And what tools did you use to manage that? Yeah, I think if you speak to anyone in the events industry, you know, it's it. you wouldn't even call it a job, you'd call it a lifestyle. You're doing... God knows, you're doing minimum on show days, you're doing minimum 12, 13 hour days. And I mean, that's we'd laugh and call it a half day on, a, on an event day. Um, and then in festival season, you're looking at, at, at more hours on top of that. Um, so I think you just try and go into a little bit of a zone, I suppose is the easiest way to say it. Um, and you know you're going to be tired, you know you're not going to get a lot of sleep, um, but you try and get it where you can. Big shout out to Tom Curtis, who's the owner of Field Vision Bars. He is very good at making sure that um, all of his staff were okay and not overworking themselves. Um, like you said, it's so high octane and it's it can be a lot of fun that you you sort of use that adrenaline to get through it. Um, and the bar staff will say the same thing. They're constantly sort of customer facing, and when it gets busy, it's it's almost like that little adrenaline rush of of your busy time. Um, so yeah, I think they they use that to get through, and and they don't do as many hours as sort of the the full-time guys um back of house never gets a shout out i think in um in any sort of events discussions i've, I've heard or people don't even know what back of house is if you've not been in the industry them guys work their bollocks off they really do they're, they're the guys doing the heavy lifting they're the guys running stock everywhere and they they do they're supposed to do shift patterns but i mean a lot of the guys i work with will do sort of 15 16 17 hour shifts just to make sure it runs smoothly so yeah, big shout out to them guys. I think they, they do a great job. That question brings us nicely, I think, to the mental health side of the job column. Now, first of all, what sort of environment was there around mental health in your work and how did your colleagues support each other? You know, I'm sure there must have been a few rare occasions where staff might have been abused or you were going through a particularly sort of tumultuous night where it was a long shift and it was really getting to you. Um, and imagine, I imagine, just like you touched on previously, the unsociable working hours can't be easy to manage either. Yeah, yeah. I think... Um... The unsociable hours is the worst part of the job, I think, definitely. Um, you you do sort of have to say goodbye to your social life over summer um, and tell your friends that you'll see them in three months or two and a half months, whatever it is. Um, but you form really good sort of bonds within your team. So um, full-time-wise at Field Vision, there was eight of us, um, and that's that becomes a real a real family unit. Um, anything you're, you're struggling through, or like anything you're having a really bad day, or something's gone wrong, you've always got somebody you can turn to and, and chat to. Um, there's no no judgment in the industry. I don't think if you do something wrong, it's more of how we're going to sort it out. You talked about your st- this thing called a staffing hub off air column. Now tell the listeners a bit about that and how you use it to help your staff. Yeah, so the staffing hub we came out of Printworks actually. Um, we there's a like a back of house area where obviously none of the guests will see um, and that's where the staff come to sign in it's where they come on their breaks um, where they can just come and relax if it all gets a bit too much because we know how demanding the general public can be and how much they like their drinks so sometimes it can it can be a bit too much if the queue time is is long or if somebody makes a mistake which happens um, but the staffing hub is what we say to our staff in our briefings is it's the safe room it's where you come and you're not going to get 
any sort of aggro. You're not going to get stressed out. It is just a place to chill in a very active and live venue. Um, it's right at the back away from the music, so it's not, not as loud as the rest of the place. Um, and you'll see a lot of other companies use it. Um, we use HAP Recruitment for our staffing out in festivals because we need so many people. Um, they are actually great. They have their own sort of mobile staffing hubs that they set up through like at each festival. Um, and they bring a big team with them to make sure that if any staff are feeling rubbish or not enjoying themselves, they've got somebody to speak to. Um, so yeah, the staffing hub I think is is used throughout the industry and it's it's great. It means that staff have somewhere to go that isn't necessarily in a stressful situation. It's just somewhere they can go and speak to someone or if they are feeling really uncomfortable, they can come and speak to one of the heads of department like myself and just will work out the best sort of scenario for them next step. We talked about the sort of how you deal with the mental health of your staff column. I just wanted to switch it now to how you deal with the mental health of the clientele you serve. Now, if someone had a mental health emergency in the crowd, how did you as a manager and then secondly as an events team deal with that, tackle it and also help them? Yeah, so um, Broadwick Live do... The main operational running at Printworks, um, they do everything other than bars. Um, so we work very closely with them and point out if we can see somebody who is having an episode due to uh, drink or drugs or they're just in a, a space that is stressing them out. Um, we have sort of procedures put in place. Um, we've got a radio system which has every department in the venue on radio on a different channel. Um, so medics are off memory called uh, channel six off memory and um, we'd get through to them and just say we've seen somebody who isn't looking in the best state or is is looking a little bit troubled um, and medics there's always a big team of medics on standby at Printworks um, probably the best I've ever seen a venue deal with medical emergencies um, everything is seen to so quickly like people get there ridiculously quickly um, and the sort of medic's room again is is off to the side and it's quiet um and then the medic team they're all paramedics so they know exactly what they're doing um good at calming people down we also have two stress relieving dogs um at Printworks, so they're in there just for somebody to stroke because it's proven that stroking a dog lowers your blood pressure um completely chills you out so yeah they're, they're great at dealing with any sort of problems like that um, and then if, if it can't be dealt with at Printworks, then there's two um, ambulances always on standby to go to a local hospital or wherever they need to go. Excellent. And just finally, Colm, how do you see yourself in this industry going forward? Is it something that you've, we, and we'll, go, we'll talk about this later in the, on in the pod, but is it something you feel like you, you've, you've sort of moved away from or do you feel like in the future you might end up going back into it? Obviously, you talked about the sociable, the, you know, the unsociable working hours. So is, do you think that you end up getting your toes back in the water, essentially? Yeah, um, obviously Corona has not not helped the events industry at all at the moment. Um, I've spoken to a lot of friends since I've been back from my travels um, and unfortunately a few of them have been laid off. Um, myself, I've, I had a job interview today as a Tesco delivery driver, um, so hopefully get that. Um, and just that's the short term because there's not a lot of, well, there's no opportunities out there at the moment really for, for the, the industry I was in. Um, the best we can hope for is that it, it sort of sorts itself out fairly quickly and then all festivals that were supposed to go ahead just get pushed back to August or, or even September if the weather holds out. Um, personally, I'd, I'd love to go back into the industry because 
it's it's great. It's it's worth giving up your weekends for because you do get some downtime. It's not it's not constantly sort of long hours. Um, so oh yeah, I'd love to go back into it, and um, we'll see what happens after this all finishes because it could be busier than ever if everyone's trying to hold events at the same time. <laughs> Let's dive a bit deep in our column and talk about your own journey. Now, I should preface this by saying, for those listeners who don't know how me and Colin know each other, we actually met at a wedding of our very good friend, P. I'm going to give a massive shout out to P on the pod because that wedding was unbelievable. That was like the first wedding I'd been to since I was like seven. And we ended up playing football in the middle of the wedding. Like it was absolutely unbelievable. Like someone found a football and it was just like a tiny kid's ball in the middle of this random like like farm or like Sussex countryside farm. And it was just like the most, unbel- it was just the most unbelievably weird and surreal moment. But I also ended up being completely sweated through after about half an hour. It was, a, it was brilliant. Um, but for you, for you, Colm, just, just tell me about your early life, your childhood and teenage years uh, and whether looking back there were any sort of early mental health experiences that you can pinpoint. Yeah, I agree with you. That football match was one of the greatest things to to ever happen. Shout out Pete Harrison, yeah, top wedding. Um, yeah, big big fan. That was a great day. Um, early life. Oh yeah, I was born in Chelsea Westminster Hospital. Um, spent the first four years of my life living in Pimlico, um, which a lot of you know or won't know is just sort of next to Victoria Station. Um, my family are all originally from Pimlico, mum and dad. Um, my nan and granddad moved there when they were sort of teenagers from Ireland. Um, but I'll shout out Churchill Gardens, Council Estate. It's, it's great. One of, the, one of the greatest places in London. It's a real like old Irish community. Everyone looks out for each other. Um, I think, yeah, obviously a great place and still go back there now. My dad still lives there. Um, so yeah, a lot of, lot of time in Pimlico, great place. Um, as for teenage years, I I would have been pre-teenage years actually. My mum and my dad broke up when I was about six or seven, maybe. Um, and we then proceeded. To, well, me and mum proceeded to move around a lot. So we lived uh, back in London for a bit. Lived in Ireland, which was which was great. Lived with family over there, um, and then eventually did a full circle and ended up moving back to Woking and living in the pub which we still own. Um, as for mental health, I think it, back then it, it wouldn't have affected me. I, I, I remember, obviously, as anyone is, any child is going through sort of your parents getting divorced. I remember being sad, but I, I don't remember being like traumatised by it or like deeply distressed. I think um, my mum couldn't have been any better in the situation, really. She was she was incredible with it. Um, she sort of, as, as a single mum, that's got to be a hard thing to do. But all the moving around and, and not knowing sort of where you're at, I mean, she she kept me very levelled throughout it all, which was which was lovely. Um, and now we we still sort of it sounds lame, but you know when you get asked who your best friend is, I'll I'll always say my mum, which is which is yeah very nice. Um, and my dad, I still speak to, so he lives as I said back in Pimlico, so I still see him a fair bit. He's into his golf, and so am I. So we play a lot of golf together, um, and also. He came to my graduation, which was very good, and sat there with mum, stepdad, everyone, and everyone got along really well. So that's uh, that's always very nice to see, sort of full circle. Um, and then sort of up until now, I think 
Um, sort of, yeah, in, in a good place at the moment. Just come back from six months traveling, which was such a good experience. Recommend to anyone that can sort of save up the money and get a chance to go. Um, it's, yeah, it's life changing. It sort of opens up your, your horizons and makes you have a different perspective on life because you're not seeing your usual day to day stuff. Um, yeah, in, in a decent place. Obviously, we both went to Coastal Universities column and we both absolutely loved them. I mean, you had a, a sandy beach, which I'm, I'm pretty jealous about because Brian had a pebble beach. So you might as well not even had a beach. Um, however, it was this point in your life, if I'm correct in saying, particularly your final year, that you first started to struggle with your mental health. If you could, just tell me why that was, as well as what your mental health was like, was like in the years leading up to it. Yeah, um, I think that was definitely, it was, it was a real eye-opener because... I hadn't experienced or even really heard the word mental health um, or mental sort of or any sort of uh, anxiety issues. I haven't heard it mentioned until I went to university um, and it was it wasn't really talked about too much at home. Um, Mum did train to be an occupational therapist and she um, worked in the mental health and like, well, worked with people with mental health issues a lot, but she didn't bring her work home with her. So again, it was never never really spoken to it. and then when you get to university it's sort of eye-opening because you meet people that have had mental health problems or are suffering with mental health issues um and that for me then was um was interesting to see and I think probably helped in the long run because then when I started going through my anxiety issues I think I then realized um what it was it wasn't as scary because I'd, I'd heard people describe what they'd been through before and I was like okay right that's got to be something to do with that and then knew the right people to speak to 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 get help which was great um but yeah first first year of uni was was great I met I've shout out floor one which is my my floor from first year um them guys are the best still speak to them now um they were amazing but I, I think I partied too hard in first year um and I ended up failing three units out of my six um and uh, at the end of the year had to decide whether to retake first year or swap courses um so I swapped courses onto events I was doing business originally um and that that swap was the best I mean uh, events is what I think I've always meant to do and it may have taken a year to find out what it was but um yeah that was that was a great swap for me um and then I'd say my second and sort of third year which had been my second like I, I yeah my second year they were they were great I, I don't remember having any any sort of issues during them two years um got my head down and just wanted to study and not not mess up like my first year again um and then like you said it wasn't until my final year when I sort of realized what or how I was feeling it wasn't wasn't the best and I think it was my dissertation that just got that got the most of me because there's so much pressure not not from the university but I think socially on your dissertation and there's this whole 2-1 thing where everyone's like oh you, you've got to get a 2-1 and all of that stuff um which is is a lot of pressure and I don't think I I took it on board um sort of I didn't think I'd take it on board and then really looking at it afterwards it was sort of in my psyche so I was like every time I was writing my dissertation I was like oh is this good enough to get 2-1 and I was thinking about it without even thinking about it um so yeah, I think I had I had a panic attack when I was driving down to Gunwolf Keys with me and my ex. Um, we we were just driving. I just felt really really sort of overwhelmed and had to pull over. And that was that was the first one that I'd had. Um, 
and that was sort of I'd say midway through final year so when when the pressure was starting to sort of mount a bit um and she was great she was she was excellent with helping me because she she didn't judge at all um she just sort of said look I'll, I'll drive us back um let's figure out what's what's wrong um so yeah big shout out to her for that one she she was great through the whole thing um I spoke to my mum about it um and she said it's you've just got to map out where you think stuff is stressing you out and and sort of find stuff to battle against it um and she she put in sort of perspective for me and said look it's, it's a dissertation at the end of the day it's not the end of the world um if you don't get 2-1 that's it's not it and even if you don't pass it it's, there's no issues there at all um so that was that was great but i think that put me into a bit of a negative mind space um and just had had my mind racing a bit um so i did i ended up going to the doctors um and they prescribed me anti-anxiety medication which um, i don't i don't know if it if it had an effect or not but i took it anyway because it was prescribed um and made it through the final year and I did get a 2-1 in my dissertation <laughs> um not that not that it matters at all I think now looking back on it I, I really wouldn't have been fussed what I came out with um but that final year was was good for me I, I needed to go through that to learn where my boundaries are and learn my thought patterns at the time and change them um and now yeah I, I, literally the second I handed that dissertation in it was like a weight was lifted and stopped taking the medication um, and haven't experienced anything like it since. So, um, yeah, it just shows, I think, what, what external pressure can do um, subconsciously and without you thinking about it, suddenly it all sort of amounts and gathers up very quickly and then I think we're blessed to be in a country that has such good facilities to help us, help us with it and get it sorted so quickly. When you finally graduated, Colin, did that period of poor mental health make that moment that much more sweeter yes I think a hundred percent I mean when you've gone through all that stuff and and anyone that's got sort of had these these anxiety attacks and and worries when you get over something that's been scaring you and you you do well in it I think it's just a massive sense of achievement that you've you've made it through that and uh, come out the other side when you finally came out the other side as well, what do you think you learned from that moment? Um, I think I learned not to overthink these these things and just take it as it comes. Um, I think it's just it was it was a dissertation at the end of the day. It's it's not like it was ever going to harm me in any way. Um, so yeah, looking back on it now, it's it's almost I'd I'd laugh at it. I mean, if I had to do a dissertation now, I'd, I'd be in a great space to do it, and it wouldn't wouldn't sort of. I wouldn't even second guess it. So I think the overthinking thing was was good to realise that I had done that and and take that forward and not overthink things in the future. For many people, including myself, university is a place where you can finally be yourself, you know, feel safe in expressing your individuality and, and just enjoy yourself, really. However, it can also become a place where all those issues that you couldn't or wouldn't deal with at school come to a head and need to be dealt with for the sake of your long-term health. Did you find that to be the case as well? Yeah, I think you. it's the first time you're truly independent, um, for most people anyway. Um, and that takes getting used to. I think there's, there's an adjustment period in freshers when, when you first go to university where you're, you're like, shit, I'm, I'm, this is me now. There's no, there's no, you have parents are at the end of the phone, but there's no parents 
to do your washing, there's no parents to do your cleaning, you have to keep yourself active, you have to eat well, which I know uh, there's so many studies into eating well and how it affects your mental health. And I know we, most students in the UK prioritise their loan towards going out and drinking, which is what I did, it's the same as what most people do. Um, but you have to find the balance. You've still got to eat well. And I, I notice a massive difference in myself when, when I'm having a good diet and I'm not partying all the time. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's a big old transition period and it's fine to feel shitty for the first few, well, up to your first sort of whole year. I mean, if, if you're really not transitioning that well, then it's just something you'll eventually get used to, but there's no time frame on how long it's going to take um so yeah yeah definitely a a big change in your life and learning to live by yourself is something that just happens in the end what do you think got you through that dark period of your life is there anything you can pinpoint where you thought okay this is a tool that I used or this is something that I said to myself to get myself through it was there anything that you can pinpoint looking back um yeah definitely family support from my mum um she was she was great with it um and I think your mates I mean I had lucky to have a really solid friendship group in final year of university um centered around our football team so I think that was that was great even if you I wasn't vocalizing to them how I was feeling it was just having them around and a bit of distraction and and having football to play at least I mean we're playing at least twice a week at university so it's um it was great, yeah. That was uh, having something to keep active and having people to talk to was was key to it. I think definitely. And just going back to your panic attacks now, when you were sort of going through them, what were the experiences that you had in that moment? Was it was it more anxiety driven? So was it kind of sweating and sort of quickened uh, speech, or was it a panic attack in sort of how? your your body reacted to things you know what what was sort of going through your head when they when they happened so they were they were mainly centered around when i got in a car which was strange i'm i'm still not sure why they they centered around that um i think it may have been because i was in a position of of power in the car and if if i lost control of the car then that was like something bad would happen i think that was a big a big thing with that um but i it was for me it was more um like rapid heart rate and then I'd start to get like clammy hands and then my vision would start to sort of white out a little bit um and yeah I didn't didn't have too many it would just be in situations where I think I was already stressed enough and when when that stress got heightened then they'd they'd come on but um yeah it was it was really I'd, I'd say count on two hands maybe the amount I had during final year um whether that was a medication that then that helped that um, or whatever, uh, whether sort of my thought pattern changed uh, the more I spoke to friends and family. Um, yeah, that was that was the main things, really, the, the whiting out of vision and, and sweating and clammy hands. And just finally, Colin, for anyone who, who might be listening to this pod who, ex- who lives with sort of anxiety or experiences panic attacks, what advice or message would you give them? I'd say just just keep going. There's there's no there's no sort of shame in it. I think speak to people that you're close with um, and just let your feelings out because holding it in is just going to make it worse. 
um, the more you vocalise what you're going through, the sort of more normal it sounds to you. Um, even if the, pe- the sort of the people you're speaking to don't fully understand it, the more you speak about it, the more it becomes normal to you, and then eventually it will it will just be a thing of the past. I think that's for me. There was I don't remember a, a pinpoint moment that it, it all stopped. I think handing the dissertation was obviously a massive a massive point, but it, it's not like it was a light switch and it just went off on that moment. Um, I think it was just I learnt to deal with it and sort of I just worked it out. So I'd say yeah, anyone anyone going through that speak to people. The NHS are great. I know they're they're super overloaded at the moment, but I'm sure they won't be um, they won't be slacking on their mental health departments because it's a tough time for everyone, and um, there there'll be more than enough people around to help out. The next topic I wanted to dive into with you, Colm, and it's one that I had to include, and you've alluded to it earlier, which is your experiences whilst travelling. Now, first of all, what made you want to leave your job and go off on this wild adventure in the first place? Um, for me, it was it was that classic sentence that I think everyone says, and I was like, oh, I don't, I don't want to be 30 plus and sat in a job that I enjoy but but sort of have been sat in for a few years and and not go traveling and have too many responsibilities and mortgages and all this stuff so I thought one day I, I was just thought you know what I'm gonna gonna do it I'm gonna go away and save the money um so yeah that was that was a big push and it was it was a tough it wasn't a tough festival season but it was just another another festival season that we'd done and and I was tired and I, I thought you know what I just want a bit of a break um which I think a lot of people in my my current or my my last job will laugh at because them guys are gladiators they go through festival season after festival season some of them have done it for 10 plus years but um yeah I just thought I'd, I want to get this and, and go and travel whilst I'm young so um I thought now's better time than any really. Was it a tough decision to leave your roots and support networks behind for this period of time was, as although it wasn't a massive length of time if I'm writing insane it's still quite a big decision yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the, the max I was going to go for was six months, and, and I ended up doing six months. Um, but I think this is the the great sort of use of social media and, and having a phone is you're never that far away from your your old support groups or your uh, your friends and, and family. It's just it's so easy to pick up a, a phone and give them a ring on WhatsApp or or just send them a send them a message. Um, amazingly out of all the places that I went to I, I never found myself without uh being able to get a sim so I always always had data I was never never truly disconnected from the matrix um but yeah it's uh, it was a scary definitely on on the way out on the the plane to Vietnam I, I remember thinking this is this is this is scary because you're going it's almost like starting university again it's just you're going off by yourself and and not knowing what to expect but um no I wasn't I wasn't too apprehensive about it well that's great to hear um people often think about traveling column as this once in a lifetime part of your life where it's Instagram sunsets waterfalls full moon parties now they may they might not they might all be true but for listeners who may be thinking about going traveling in your view what's the reality of it Instagram is is a place of smoke and mirrors. I think it is it shows the best sides of it all. Um, but for me, traveling is whatever you want to make of it, whatever you want to do. It doesn't have to be this Instagram perfect trip away. Um, 
you can do whatever you want. If you want to go for the party side of things, there is certainly that out in, especially Southeast Asia, out that side of the world. But if you want to go and sort of, and I hate using the word find yourself because it's being cliched, but um, I think most people you speak to will say they, they have found themselves whilst away. Um, that side of things is, is really easy to do as well. I've met a few people out in the way that went on silent retreats um, and said that was completely life-changing for their mental health and for their their life in general. Um, so, yeah, it is whatever you want it to be. If you want to do the party and if you want to do the spiritual side of things, it's, it's down to you. That's what you want to do. And I don't think you should let Instagram make you uh, make any decisions on that side of things. Do you think this distorted reality sometimes people project on social media about their travelling experiences can be harmful to the to what the wider social media culture or the wider mental health conversation do you think it could perhaps increase other people's fear of missing out or FOMO as we like to say or make them feel sad about their own life what's your opinion on it yeah I think FOMO is definitely it's definitely a thing now I mean half the reason people want to go away traveling is because they've seen other pictures on on Instagram and Facebook and whatever else of, of these amazing places um but it's it's a double-ended sword because it, it, it makes you want to go away and drives you towards doing it, which is fantastic. It gets you out there. But then also uh, there's the argument that you're you're seeing all these things before you get there. So it's almost like, oh, I've seen this already on, online. So when you get there, it's not as, not as great as you thought it was going to be. Um, I tried, I actively tried to not look at places I was going on Instagram just so I could have a first-hand experience of it. I know sometimes it's, it's completely unavoidable, but for me, it, I think the, the best experiences I had whilst I was away and, and the most amount of fun and sort of the most unique experiences were ones that I didn't find from online. It, was, it just sort of happened and I just stumbled across somewhere. Um, so I think, yeah, it, it, Instagram's great. It, it gives you that drive to go away and, and see these places. But when you get there, I'd say try and stay off your phone as much as you can and, and just go for a wander and find what you can being away from traditional support networks for so long how did you cope when things weren't going so well you know especially around your mental health yeah i I, I, there's one moment that sticks out in my mind and it was in cat bar in uh vietnam and i got got really bad food poisoning it took me out for about four days um that is that is when you're the toughest nerve in your body goes oh, I really need my mum or I really I really wish I was at home because you're in an environment you don't know um I was in a hostel at the time so surrounded by people I, I didn't know yeah that's that's when you you want to sort of rely on your support network and there was a couple of phone calls home to say I feel horrendous what do I do and, and all this and um they the, my home group were, were great because they just make you keep a level head and and basically I I just got told to lie down and wait it out and that most travellers do get some sort of stomach bug or or food poisoning when they first go away Um, but yeah afterwards when you come through it as well it it feels it feels great because you've you've dealt with your first feeling sick abroad sort of thing Um, and you know that you can go through it and you're not gonna not gonna die um it's just just a shitty shitty experience but um yeah i think it's it's great to to have that support network there still at home to to help you through but you know it toughens you up because at the end of the day they're still 
whatever, nine, ten, eleven, or maybe even more hours away on a plane. So you just have to get through it your yourself. So I think it it toughened my mental health definitely, um, and and made me more reliant on myself. You spoke about resilience then, how it improved that side of your mental health. Um, just talking about the things that you learned now. What were the things that traveling gave you? Was it was it was it a certain improvement on a on a skill set you have, or was it just general life experience? Do you think? Um, that's a good question. Um, I've always always loved talking to people. Always been great at talking to people. So that was that was never a worry um, going away. I think for me it was probably more um, keeping keeping occupied whilst being away. I, I'm not. I can never sit down on a beach and just. Um, and just lay there because it's not me. I'm, I get so bored so easy. So I think it was it was good. It was it was. I sort of worked on always having something to do and somewhere to go and something to focus on. So that that was that was good. And that, I think I'll put that into use at home now. Um, with all of us being quarantined at the moment or in isolation, it's been handy to bring that back because I can keep my days filled with with activities that obviously are all around the house. Um, so yeah, it's, it's good. I've learnt to, to keep myself occupied. Um, and that's easier to do when you're traveling, obviously, because you're, you're surrounded by all these amazing activities to do, but it's, it's definitely good to come home and put that into practice. Um, when there's less fun stuff to do, I suppose, but still making the, the, the dull stuff fun as well. Excellent. And just as a final point, Colin, what one piece of advice would you give to someone who may be considering going travelling this year? Well, I say this year, maybe next year. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, do it is is the only advice I'll give. Um, I purposefully didn't speak to friends that had, had done similar countries that I was I was doing. Um, and like I said, I didn't look into all these countries too much because you want to get the full experience and, and experience it on your own. So yeah, I'd, I'd 100% go out and do it. Um, if you are suffering with your mental health um i think it will it will benefit it it really will um i think it that first step of booking the plane ticket or even starting to plan it and plan your route that might be absolutely terrifying to you um but it it really once you get out there you'll be amazed at, at how much fun it is and how quickly you are distracted from from your problems back home and um how sort of involved you are in in the whole traveling process and six months flies by so yeah um go for longer if you can (laughs) the next topic i wanted to touch on with you colin was colin brett visuals now first of all just tell the listeners a bit about what this is why you're inspired to turn your passion into a business and your interest in it in the first place as well yeah, um, it just came off of, I used to, well, when I, when I go on holiday or when I go on little trips away, just always liked making a little sort of mini movie of it. Um, because the amount of times you go away and you take like 4,000 photos or you take all these videos and you, you, you never look back on them until you've got no signal um, and you're just scrolling through your phone and sort of, but these little videos, I still go back and watch them now. So it was more of a... Uh, a hobby to start with and I say it still it still is mainly a hobby um but you it's just great it's it's fun to capture these little moments on video or or on sort of or photographs and then turn them into a little movie and and send it to your mates that you went away with at the end and everyone seems to 
enjoy them. Um, so yeah, that was it. All started off as, as just trying to capture the exact mood of a holiday or, or a trip away, and and sort of bring that to life and show on social media. And was photography and videography something that you really sort of developed more, both as a skill and as a passion, when you got to university? Yeah, definitely. I think before. Before uni, I, I didn't. I, I've always loved photography. I've always, always loved um, a, a decent sort of film. Like I'm, I'm dead into my surfing. I've surfed since I was, I was younger, and it's like it's probably my main passion in life. And I, I used to love the, well, I still love the way that that sort of longboard surf films are shot. Um, so I started watching a lot at university and just picking bits up, um, and then that just brings you into a whole another like sort of way of seeing how things are filmed and that just got more and more and then I purchased the drone in final year um, and as, as I was saying earlier it's, it was a good distraction um, from feeling shitty I could just go out and, and try and film some stuff on the drone and, and pick some nice bits up on the camera and just make even if it, it didn't involve anyone just make some nice sort of um, landscape videos or or sort of just capturing uh, the lovely sort of south coast that we live on. Um, and yeah, yeah, good good distraction from all of that. Was there a specific moment where you thought, right, I want to take this from a hobby into something that I can really try and sell to the wider public? Um, were you given encouragement to do so? Or did it something? Did, was it something that came internally from within yourself? You know, tell me a bit about the journey behind you sort of mucking about to creating this Instagram account and sort of putting out content on a more regular basis? Yeah, I think it was when I so I went I went we go skiing every well most years um to a family friend chalet in Morion, French Alps. Um and I decided to film a video for them because that we've skied there since I was little and they've they were always so nice to us as a family. Um so I decided to make them sort of a little bit of content so they can put it on their website. Um and then I put the video up online when I got back and it just got such a great response from from friends and from people that hadn't seen it, um, the, we we go away in a big group of twelve, and and everyone shared or who came on the ski trip shared it on their Facebook pages and got really lots of like great feedback on it. Um, and then the resort that we ski at called uh, Le Grand Massif, they saw it and they asked to have the video and they shared it on their like official web page. So I think that was that was like a real. Uh, point where I thought okay maybe I can do this properly and it's not just a, a just a sort of hobby and not just like these little fun videos um it's still fun obviously but the the fact that a company of the size that they are wanted to use it I think that gave me a lot of encouragement to then offer my services out and see if anyone else wanted wanted it done and what enjoyment do you get out of doing it you know does it benefit your mental health in any way or, or perhaps provide a distraction from modern life as you alluded to earlier yeah I think that's that's it it's um it's so time consuming and it's so um, sort of down to you, you're really trying to capture something. So you, you you get really immersed in it. You want to capture exactly what whatever the the detail is. So um, did a bit of work for a architecture firm. Um, they just wanted a film on a new build and sort of a little almost like an adverty sort of video. Um, and that was that was a diff, that was great because that was a difficult challenge for me. There was no no person to to focus on it was more of a uh, a whole landscape and and building sort of thing so that was a, yeah great 
great sort of challenge. And I think that that probably is is it really. I like to be challenged by by making these films, and I like to stick to the brief as much as possible and give give the customer or or friend or client what what they want. And what's been your favourite project to work on so far? The one that's given you the most creatively. Favourite one, I think the the ski video. Yeah, that that was so much fun because you're you're. I was filming for the chalet, but at the same time, I was filming friends and I was out out skiing with friends. And the scenery up in the Alps is just just ridiculous. It's so you don't have to do too much editing in in post because there is it it speaks for itself how beautiful it is. Um, and yeah, that was that was really enjoyable. Um, I think also uh, we did Deptford Craft Beer Fest, which was. Um, we were doing with Field Vision, the company I worked for, we were running it. Um, so we used it on our social media um, and that was that was a really good atmosphere down there that day and everyone was really happy and, and willing to be filmed and that came off, yeah, that came off as a lot of fun in the end and got good feedback on um, on social medias. So yeah, the, any, anywhere where people are having a good time and there's a good atmosphere is always fun to film because it doesn't feel like work. Excellent. And obviously in light of recent uh, events, you might not be able to do much uh, photography and videography right now, but what things have you perhaps got coming up, you know, in the next year or when this is all blown over? Yeah, I think um, at the moment I've just been doing a bit of um, editing for other people. So I had a friend send through some footage uh, he got from the Philippines and he just wanted a, a sort of a little home movie done um to show friends and family so that was that kept me going when I was back um and I've taken a break from it whilst away um I, I did think about doing sort of like a big travel video but it was I wanted to enjoy myself and not not make it feel like um I had to be doing stuff whilst I was away so yeah I took took a break from it whilst I was away um and then this year just again see see what what can be done and if anyone wants little things filming or or um any bigger projects so yeah yeah there's there's a lot to be thought out and I think I need to sit down and brainstorm and have a, a plan about how to um go forward after this craziness finishes and just finally Colin for anyone who wants to follow your work on social media or commission you for work where can they find you uh yeah so it's Colin Brett Visuals on Instagram and uh, Colin Brett Visuals on Facebook. So yeah, just give them a search and drop me a follow and I'm always always in the DMs if anyone wants to drop me a message. Um, and yeah, happy to do whatever you want as long as it's legal and it's uh, all above board. I'm, I'm happy to go wherever and film whatever and just excited to get some new challenges with, with the drone and with the cameras. Amazing. And we'll put a link to um, all of Colin's links uh, in the description of the pod. Our final topic of conversation column, and it's one that I have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's good. I think um, coming back from travelling is a big, a big change. Um, going from uh, not doing anything of too much purpose, um, being away. You're just sort of living your day-to-day and getting on with life and not worrying about your daily, daily struggles. Um, uh, I thought it would be a bigger transition coming home, but if anything, <laughs> I don't think Corona's helped anything at the moment, but 
the transition coming home is has been made easier because I'm not straight back into work. Um, I've got a lot of time to to chill out and sort things out. Yeah, I think my mental health's the best it's ever been whilst I was away, and um, it it's it's still that now. And I've been home for over a week. Um, so yeah, I think long long may it continue. Excellent. And if you felt comfortable saying, what mental health issues or conditions do you live with? And how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? Um, I think, for me, the anxiety thing's a thing of the past. Um, that I know, I eventually figured out what that was centred around, as I said before, with, with the dissertation. Um, I'd say I just live with, with what everyone else lives with, really. is is just your, your day-to-day stresses and wondering how you're going to pay bills and, and sort of you know just yeah the daily stuff um there's no i haven't got any diagnosed conditions um nothing like that but i know there's a lot of stuff that goes goes undiagnosed um but i'd say yeah just just your your normal day-to-day stresses and i think a, a massive um thing in our generation is is overthinking and i definitely say i'm an overthinker um but learning to get on top of that is is great like um Cognitive, uh, cognitive behavioural therapy. My mum taught me from when she was OTing is is great, and it's just breaking that thought pattern um, that you go through with certain overthinking thoughts. And um, yeah, yeah, just uh, trying to manage them as much as you can. Excellent. That's really good to hear, mate. I always say that um, not everyone has a mental health issue or may have a mental health issue, but everyone has mental health. So that's really good to hear. Um, what things do you find in life that might trigger your mental health, if there are any triggers? So they, they, this might be things people say, environment, situations, etc. Trigger would definitely be, and I think most people agree with this, is is when you have a big weekend or you have a, a big few days on maybe going out and seeing people and having a few too many shandies. Um, I think is is that that dreaded. Sunday morning fear and and then it sometimes carries over into the Monday if you've got a big day in the office or you've got a big day on on events um and that's I think absolutely fine everyone goes through it that that definitely brings a bit of comfort to everyone but also you know why you're going through that because you've you've put yourself in that situation so you've got a you've got a stick with it and um you know you'll feel fine by the Tuesday but I think yeah trigger for me is definitely um lifestyle choices sometimes and what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? You know, which ones have you found that worked and maybe which ones that haven't? Yeah, I think um, keeping keeping active for me is, is a huge one. Um, when when life, <laughs> when normality is restored, uh, when normality is resumed, sorry, um, the normal life for me is sort of football twice a week, golf once a week maybe, um, surfing on weekends if there's a swell and I can get down to the coast. Um, and all of that is is sort of sort of healthy mind, healthy body, and all that sort of all that sort of stuff. Um, and as I said before, eat, eating well really really helps me. Um, if you're putting the right stuff sort of in your meals and getting all your your right nutrients and and sort of right food, then I I feel a hundred percent better definitely. Um, so that is that's a big big plus for me. And how do you support friends in your own social group who may have mental health issues themselves or might just be going through a poor period of mental health? Yeah, I've, I've always said to to my friendship groups, I'm, I'm always there for a chat. I think I'm never, if somebody's feeling shitty, I've, I've, I've always sort of 
said to them, you don't want to put pressure on them talking to you because they might not want to talk about it. And that is completely, that's completely their decision. But um, if they're feeling rubbish and they want to speak to someone, I'm, I'm always at the end of the phone. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, I'd say the, the main friendship groups I have um, are great with, with supporting other people. Um, we're all human at the end of the day. Nobody's going to feel great 24-7, 365. Um, so if if you're feeling rubbish, then yeah, there's there's always some somebody to speak to within our friendship groups, which I think is is great. Um, and like I said, if they don't want to speak about it, we usually with some of my friends I've been friends with for twenty plus years now, and I'll, I'll know if they're they're not themselves. Um, and I think usually just asking them how they're feeling brings out a lot, and and yeah, is is definitely a good thing to keep an eye out for your mates and make sure that they're feeling. 100%. Now, before we talk about toxic masculinity, I've got to ask you one question about your name, mate, because I can pronounce it correctly, but as with we both have names that people might not be able to pronounce properly, is this something that you've had to fight back a lot in your life? Or like me, do you just accept it and just correct people the first time they mispronounce it? <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I, I've got off lucky here because uh, originally uh, my dad always tells me the story is my mum wanted to call me Gabriel. So I think I've got off, I've got off lightly with Colm um, because Gabriel would be a, a tough one to explain as well. But I, I've just accepted it. Uh, it's, uh, it's your name at the end of the day and I think I love it. It's, it's, it's a, a conversation starter for, for sure on nights out and, um, and when you're meeting new people because half the time they won't believe that it's true and you're, you're having them on and then that's, that's a, great, a great conversation starter. And um, I, I get bored of the sentence of, of saying it's just Gollum with a C but it makes a lot of people laugh. So I think, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I love my name and it's, it's great to have to explain it to everyone. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that sort of little analogy there. And it's so, and it's so perfect as well, just to help people. Um, toxic masculinity is something that we, we talk about a lot on this podcast column. Now, in your view, what would your definition be of it? And how have you perhaps seen it throughout your life? Or, or what examples could you give of how you've experienced it? Yeah, I suppose toxic masculinity. Uh, I, I, I suppose it's that whole a bloke should be a bloke or a man should be a man. Um, I think I, parenting wise, my my dad and my mum uh, probably have different views on masculinity. I think my mum is is more more liberal with it, so she she wouldn't agree that. Um, a, a sort of a man should be a man and a bloke should be a bloke and she is a lot more open to the new way of thinking about it and my dad is is old school he's he's old school cockney and and his view is probably still that uh a man is a man and that's that's the role that he has i think he he'd probably slowly be coming around to to new ways of thinking um but for me yeah i, I don't think masculinity can mean whatever you want it to mean but i think um if you're looking at it sort of definition wise is masculinity is is male characteristics and how how a man acts but nowadays it's completely different so a man can act in in any way he wants um so i suppose it's a bit of bit of an outdated or will eventually become an outdated uh, use of the word um so yeah toxic masculinity to me is probably probably an interesting one and and eventually it will change with with the generation i suppose is is the the best way of putting it um i think the sooner 
everyone sort of comes to terms with with the way the world is at the moment and everyone can be whatever they want and do whatever they do I think is is great I've, I've got no issues I let everyone crack on with whatever they want to do and as long as they're happy then nothing wrong with that we also talk a lot about positive masculinity column and this is something that I've been trialing it's a bit of a new phrase now for you what would your definition of positive masculinity be and how would you sort of use examples of how we as men can be positively masculine? Yeah, I think uh, positive masculinity is just supporting your fellow fellow male friend, I suppose, is, is the way of doing it. If, if you, To be masculine shouldn't be this hard face and, and no emotion sort of 1950s character if you know what I mean I think nowadays being being a good bloke is just being open and honest and and helping in any way you can um yeah I think that's that's probably the best way I could put it really and why do you think it's taken men so long to open up about their mental health you know express it different kinds of emotions outside of maybe violence or sexual braggadocio and show vulnerability as well yeah I don't it's it's a really hard question and it's an interesting one I think back back in the, our parents days and our grandparents days the man was expected to provide and and be the the sort of the protector of the household a protector of the family um that is changing but i'd say it's, it's still there and i think a lot of men still take great great pride and great sort of um honor in being that that protector protector of the family um i know that that will be something I, I really look forward to eventually having a family one day is is feeling that that protection and, and making sure that your family's safe um but yeah I think it, it's the world is changing so I think it the whole masculinity thing is whatever you want and whatever you make of it it's uh it's so up for interpretation that it's it's the however you interpret your your masculinity and how you portray that upon the world I suppose Great. And I've got one more question for you, Colin, before we wrap up this pod. What more do you think needs to be done so we can help everyone, but especially men and boys, get to a stage where they can talk about their mental health straight away, not let it, um, not let it be bottled up and not feel like it's so highly stigmatised either when they do speak out? Yeah, I think it's, it's got to start in schools. I think from a young age, the, if you're if you're taught in school that that showing your feelings is great and and if you're sad you're sad and you tell people you're sad um that's fantastic because if you learn that from a young age you'll grow up and and feel absolutely great about sharing your feelings and and letting everyone know how you are but it's also got to be taught to the older generations as well um even the older generations i mean down to down to our generation it's still a massive a massive thing i mean guys don't like sharing their feelings um and and it is there's still a stigma attached to it but the more um that we're taught as as men that it's okay to share our feelings i think that the push on social medias is fantastic with with all these sort of events and and days where it's normalized to for blokes to show their feelings and men to to be themselves i think eventually it will become more and more normal to to say if you're not feeling okay um but yeah i think to Starting off in schools is is huge because then kids get to know from early, but then you've still got to educate the us and the older generation that it's okay to share feelings and and change that um, set mindset that everyone's in when they hear the words feelings or when men hear the word feelings and and take away the the negativity towards it. 
Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this 30th episode of the Just Checking In podcast. Colin, thank you so much for being my special guest on this edition's pod and for checking in with me. I'd love to get you on for another Teamwag soon and hopefully let's not make it another four years before we see each other. As always, thank you to all the venters who've tuned in. Stay safe, stay healthy, and I hope everyone supports all the amazing NHS workers in your lives as much as possible. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give us a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling very generous, write us a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to them. It's true.